So hey, if you're, uh, if you're anything like me, <laughs> I recognize some of you are like, I'm not anything like you. Um, and I don't want to be. If you're anything like me, it's really easy for me to be really discouraged about what's going on in the world. About how things around me in the world don't work right. <laughs> it's really easy to look at what's going on in culture, in politics, in, in, in the economy, in the lives of people we hear about at our workplace. It's really easy to look at what's going on in the world around us and become real discouraged real quickly. There's hardly a day that goes by, for me at least, without seeing the news feed go by or reading the paper or scrolling through uh, my social media uh, where I don't go away after about 30 seconds (laughs) feeling like, what on earth is wrong with people? We now have such constant and easy access. We are living in an unprecedented time in history where we know more about what's wrong and messed up about the world than I think anybody ever has. And there's a real sense in which that, that world we live in now, there, there's a burden to that. That's hard to live with. And that's worth naming and saying out loud. And listen, here's the rub. It's not just that stuff going on out there. Oh, it's easy to talk about that stuff. And it's sort of excuse ourselves and keep it out there. It's not all that stuff only that is messed up. It's also the stuff that's going on in here for me. And I know this is the case for you. Because if you're anything like me, it is really easy to be discouraged about how things aren't working right in my own life and in my own circumstances. Like right now, moment of vulnerability. I'm just going to tell you half the stuff. If I told you the second half, you'd be like, he shouldn't even be standing up there. Right now in just my own life, I am struggling with a number of things where I just feel like, where is God in the mess of this? Like right now, I'm struggling with anger. I have an anger problem. And I know some of you do too. I I struggle, and I've talked about this a few times here and there. I struggle with uh, depression. And each week, I have like this mini depression of like two or three days. I know some of you do too. I struggle with anger, with a mini depression just about two or three days a week. I struggle with being 20 pounds overweight, sometimes 25. <laughs> I'm glad you can feel better about yourself momentarily. I struggle with being a workaholic. I struggle with getting my worth from how others think about me. I struggle with not taking a day off. I struggle with saying no to others' expectations instead of what I know God's are for me. I struggle with getting my sermon done by 5 p.m. Friday. And listen, friends, in every single one of those areas in my life, I just feel like I'm losing ground, quite honestly. And, and, and honestly, that's just, that's just kind of half of it. So I often feel like, where are you, Lord, in my mess? Because sometimes I feel like you're just sitting around enjoying your own holiness and perfection. Where I'm down here struggling (laughs) to 
to take off 20 pounds. Where are you, God, in the mess of my life? And I know you all experience this too. Where are you, God, when I've been without a job for many months that for some of you have turned into a couple years or so when I've been submitting resumes, knocking on doors, putting in my time, doing in the work, and nothing shows up? Where are you, God, when I've been praying for a family member or a friend or a son or a daughter who is far from God and they seem to be just getting farther away? We can go on and on like this. Where are you, Lord, when our pregnancy plans aren't working? When I'm struggling with an addiction I can't beat? When this disease continues to ravage my body and it physically hurts? Where are you, Lord, when tragedy strikes that I can't have any control over? Where are you when I'm depressed, when I'm downcast, and I'm discouraged, and it feels like in my life and the world around me, all I see is darkness. Sometimes I feel like, am I missing something, God? (laughs) Because it sometimes seems like you're not being God to me in those ways that I'm pretty sure you can be intervening, (laughs) fixing things, answering prayers, you know, being God when things are messed up. That's where a lot of us live. And it's not just the world out there. It's our own lives. And in this series, we're going to look at three words that describe that kind of feeling of when God doesn't make sense. And there are these three. We start with the first one today. When God seems inattentive, when God seems late, And God seems uncooperative. Now I want to ask you to participate with me in a little survey, just a quick little survey here with a show of hands. I know that sometimes I say that and I'm raising my hand and (laughs) in your head you're like yes or no, but I'm not going to actually physically raise my hand. I I get it, that's okay. But but today I'd like for you to actually physically raise your hand uh, because I want to make a a point here. I want you to respond with this quick little survey here. Um, Okay? You're not going to let me down, right? Some of you are like, can't nothing you say make me raise my hand. Okay, if any of these three words have ever described how you have felt in your relationship with God, I want you to raise your hands high, loud and strong. All right, good. Look, thank you. Look around you for just a second while these hands are raised high. Okay, you can put them down. Listen, we can pray and dismiss now because we've already learned something. You thought it was just you. You did. You thought it was just you, but it's not. And I know it feels that way. That's how it feels when you're in the depths of of, of rough patches and and a dry season or or tragedy that strikes. I get that it feels that way. But listen, we all struggle with feeling like God sometimes seems distant or or like our prayers aren't being answered and and we feel like, where is God in all this mess of the world and in in my life? Where is God in all this mess? 
Listen, friends, this isn't new. Followers of Jesus have been struggling with this for years, from the beginning of following Jesus. And sometimes, here's the hard part. It's kind of frustrating and a little bit funny. Uh, There are other people around us, especially Christians, that sometimes make things even worse and make us think that we're deficient or we're being unfaithful because we have doubts about this relationship with God thing. You know who I'm talking about because we all have this friend, this always blessed friend. You know who I'm talking about? Some of them are in your life groups, and you're like, I know exactly who this is. You know, it's that person who I like, I'm just blessed. I'm blessed. Everything is blessed. Everything I do is blessed, and I praise Jesus all the time. (laughs) You just want to say, are you a human being? Because there you are, struggling with things in your own life. You've got bad stuff happening. You've got struggles and trauma and pain going on in your own life, trying to be faithful, not to, you know, cuss or hit somebody. And this person, I know some of y'all identify with that. (laughs) Giftedness with words has a dark side, believe me. Trying to be faithful. And this other person's like, I was at the store the other day and I was in a big hurry and I got to the store and I was praying, dear Jesus, I don't have time. And at just, just the perfect moment, as I approached the front of the store, someone pulled out of the very first spot and God downright gave me, blessed me with the perfect Jesus parking spot when I needed it. <laughs> Sometimes you just want to be like, shut up. And then people like me stand up here and come along. You know preacher stories, right? Like everything works when the preacher stands up and talks about it like it's easy. Everything works in preacher stories. Because I'm going to stand up here and tell you about how things are supposed to be, how they should be, tell preacher stories where God is amazing and he always comes through. And it's easy to feel going away from interactions like that or sermons like that or I'm always blessed people. It's easy to go away feeling like you are deficient. Or or, or your faith is broken. (laughs) Like it's your fault that you have a problem. When people around us act like that, it just sort of accentuates some of those feelings uh, of doubt. Like it's our fault for having doubts. But friends, the truth is, we all go through tough times and rough patches and dry seasons. (laughs) Some of y'all are like, that's called my life, yeah. And that's okay. That's normal. I mean, think about what we're doing here today. 2,000 years after I'm standing here proposing to you that you should follow a guy, you should stake your life on a guy you've never met in the flesh. That's bordering on crazy at some level. Let's just say that out loud. But it's normal to wonder, where is God in the mess? When I feel like he's not answering, he's not responding, He's not taking me where I think I'm supposed to be going. Where I was pretty sure the plan and the trajectory, the godly trajectory toward the front parking space, I'm pretty sure it was headed that way, but it just doesn't seem to be. The question for us is this. 
How do we come out on the other side with our faith in God intact? How do we come through tough times, dry patches, rough seasons with a greater sense of God's presence? So we're going to look at three stories of people in the New Testament who dealt with tough times when it seemed like God uh, wasn't there for them in, in, in some ways. And this is the key. This is the key that goes through all three of these weeks here. We don't form our ideas about the goodness of God and his purposes from our circumstances presently, but we must learn to interpret our present circumstances through the goodness of God and his purposes. That's the key. We'll get there a little bit later, and I'll say it a few more times, so don't worry if you missed it. Now, complicated passage, lots of characters, lots of things going on in the story. We're going to set the context by telling you just a smidge in overview form before we jump into Mark 6 about the characters and the story to set the context. There are six characters. Number one, Herod. In our text today, it's going to say Herod, but it means Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. He was the son of Herod the Great. There are six Herods in the New Testament, so don't be, you know, oh no, I don't know which Herod. It's confusing. So Herod here in the passage today refers to Herod Antipas, and he is the son of Herod the Great, the Herod who was in the Christmas story. He has a brother named Philip, also the son of Herod the Great, and Philip has a wife named Herodias. Well, she was his wife because now, here's a wrinkle, Herod, Herod Antipas, convinces Herodias to marry him and to leave his brother Philip. Let me say that again, a bit confusing. Herod convinces Herodias... Philip, his brother's wife, to leave her and to marry him. Everybody say, ooh. (laughs) Nice. That's good. Everybody in our Telford campus say, ooh. Just kidding. We don't have a Telford campus. Now, Herodias' daughter ends up being a part of this. Her name is Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E. It's not in our passage. We know that from Josephus, Jewish historian. And then finally, the last two, John the Baptist, is our main character in this story. John Baptist is a crazy character. He wore animal skins. He ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, He was a prophet who announced the coming of Jesus and preached repentance. Those two things were his entire mission. Point to Jesus, preach repentance. Two things in his mission. He is a dude who said, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. That was his whole posture of ministry. And so John the Baptist is this radical sort of sold-out Jesus hippie before Jesus hippies were Jesus hippies, lived in the wilderness and was very popular with the common folk. Because John the Baptist took on all comers and didn't take you-know-what from anybody. And he spoke out against the rich and the powerful Roman and Jewish uh, powers that be of the day. And he had a pretty famous following because of it. And he also had a pretty famous cousin, our sixth character, Um, You've probably heard his name before. He's our last character in the narrative here today. Anybody know John Baptist's cousin? (laughs) You're like, I think I should say the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Correct. Savior of the world, miracle worker, John's cousin. Jump in at Mark 6. Where we'll go through and get some more detail that helps set the scene for the doubts that John was experiencing says this, Mark 6, jump in at verse 17. For it was Herod, we're going in uh, sort of mid-story here. For it was Herod, Herod Antipas, who had sent and seized John, John the Baptist, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, meaning Herod, had married her. So in other words, Herod threw John in prison because John spoke out against Herod marrying his brother's sister. And John was popular with the people. So this was bad press for Herod. 
So, verse 18, keep reading. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful, according to the Jewish law, for you to have your brother's wife. And verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him, John the Baptist, against John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death. Yikes. That's kind of extreme, isn't it? But it's not just actually sort of an empty threat. Nobles and powerful people throughout history have killed their own enemies. And this time, Herod the Great was known for doing that. They would sometimes kill off members of their own family to protect their power and their office. So Herodias here is trying to do that same thing, to protect her power, her turf, from John the Baptist. Which brings us to lesson one for today. You may want to write this down. Don't mess with women. <laughs> lesson number one. They're pretty, they smell nice, they smile a lot, they talk nice to your face, but they will cut you. (laughs) I love that. They have ways, boys, they have ways. Mark my words, don't mess with women. Okay, keep keep reading. Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, she could not kill him off, at least not yet. For, this is interesting, look at this, verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. What an interesting phrase. Herod keeps John safe from his own crazy wife. Look at the rest of verse 20. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. Herod himself was intrigued by John's message of repentance and about the coming of the Messiah. Mark tells us later in verse 26 that we'll get to here in a bit, that Herod liked John enough that he was exceedingly sorry, it says, that that he had to do what he ends up doing in this story. So check out what happens that leads up to why Herod ends up being sorry. Look at this in verse 21. But an opportunity came, meaning for Herodias, an opportunity came, remember, they have ways, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So Herod throws this big party. There's this big party, and Herod and his nobles, his military commanders, are all there throwing this big party, and they're probably drunk, Uh, Herodias is probably like, (laughs) probably laughing to herself and walking around smiling, uh, you know, serving margaritas to Herod. So Herod's loopy, not in his right mind. So we get to verse 22, where it says, Herodias' daughter came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and his guests. (laughs) Now, uh, as I heard a pastor say recently, in the purity of my pastor mind, I envision this as a beautiful ballet. She's prancing and plieing. I don't, I don't know what a plie is, but I'm sure that's not it. She's dancing before these drunk partiers. She's not just showing off what she learned in her innocent little dance class, right? I don't know if they had poles or twerking then, but this was not, <laughs> this was not just like ballet, Okay. There's historical precedent for this. I'm getting this out of commentaries that look at the Greek, I promise. 
There are ancient Near Eastern dances that, uh, that were uh, seductive, of course, and uh, that's what she was doing. Okay? She's showing off. Herod's showing off. Uh, Herod and his, his guys are, are drunk. And it says this, verse 23, The king said to the girl, to his daughter and Herodias, Herodias' daughter, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. <laughs> Bombastic sort of promise. He vowed to her. The word vowed there is important. He vowed. He promised in front of everybody. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom, he says. This is one of those uh, sort of a, a obligatory things that kings and nobles in the ancient Near East would have said to short, sort of show off. You know, they didn't really mean, I will literally give you half my kingdom. You know, that's not really what they meant. The response to that was supposed to be something like, oh no, great king, (laughs) I only need but a morsel of reward from you and it will suffice for me. And then the king would say, oh no, but I insist. You have done such great work for me and my kingdom. You deserve blah, blah, blah. And the person's supposed to say, oh no, really, it's okay. Just, you know, say the word and I will be gone. Uh, and, and, and that back and forth, that sort of social reciprocity thing there, was supposed to be, at least at one level, the reward itself for the person. So in a real sense, that sort of back and forth social bartering was the reward. Hearing a king talk about how amazing you were was more important than you actually receiving it. But that's not what goes on here. He vowed it in front of everybody. And you'd think at this point, You'd think at this point that a young girl would ask for something like a pony, (laughs) a new phone, (laughs) Taylor Swift's tickets, Uh, but no. She does something here that some teenagers rarely do. She asks mom for advice. She says, verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. I told you they have ways. So that's what happened. She came in immediately, verse 25, with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter in front of the whole gathering. (laughs) So the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So John the Baptist ends up dead. And as it turns out, we're, we're mostly using Mark 6 as some backstory. Because there's another piece of this that we encounter in M- Matthew 11. I want you to turn with me quickly to Matthew 11, 2 through 6, if you're not there yet. This is where we begin to see some of this. Why, why is this not making sense tension for John? And Matthew 11 is before all this head on a platter part. This is before the head on a platter drama with the dancing and the drunkenness and all that kind of stuff. Something happens with John that has got to be super, super frustrating. And this is where we see this when God doesn't make sense tension. Look at verses 2 and following. Now when John heard in 
prison, probably from his own disciples. We know that from the context, not Jesus' disciples, but his own, who were giving him reports. When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he was elated and happy and praised God for the forward movement of the gospel and getting the front parking spot. No, it doesn't say that. It says he sent word by his disciples and said to him, he asked Jesus a question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist has some doubts. In other words, Jesus, I need to know what the breakout of jail plan is here. Because if you're indeed the Messiah, I assume you're coming to get me, right? I've been pointing to you. I've been preaching repentance. I've been saying, I must decrease, you must increase, and here I am in prison. I need to know what the plan is going to be here. And listen to Jesus' response. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, all of the signs that Messiah has come, that the kingdom has arrived in Jesus, they're all there, John the Baptist. They're all there. Verse 6. And he ends with a funny funny phrase. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Some of your versions probably say, who does not stumble on account of me or fall away on account of me. In other words, blessed is the one who rejoices in who I am, Jesus talking here, and what I'm doing without falling away. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is like, tell him, hey John, don't lose your faith in me while I'm out there healing everybody else. Okay, buddy? Like, here's John in prison doing what God called him to do. In prison for speaking the truth. And his own cousin, Jesus, is out there doing miracles and helping everybody else. Jesus doesn't say, tell John, of course I'm the one. Tell him that next Tuesday, under the cover of darkness, I will come and melt the bars so he can climb out the window. That's not what happens. Jesus basically says, sorry, John, no such plan. If if I'm John, and Jesus is off working Messiah magic on everybody else, utilizing his supernatural power through God the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit in him to work miracles, and I'm sitting there in prison like, so the plan for me is that there's no plan for me. The plan is that the the blind receive sight, the lame walk, good news is preached to the poor, and I'm stuck in prison. I mean, I, I can't imagine on that day when an executioner walks in and suddenly John's like, oh, so that's the plan. John's imprisonment 
didn't match what he understood of the coming of the Messiah. Everybody else getting blessed while I'm struggling with... Are, are you the one? Are you the one? Jesus says, go back and report what you hear and see. That's telling, isn't it? Go back and tell John what you hear and what you see. Because that, be, that should be enough to answer his question, right? You see, John's problem... was an infatuation, a, a, a focus on his own struggles that made him a prisoner to what could be seen and heard. Here's a hard truth, friends. For many of us, I know for me, for many of us, a lot of my doubt is tied to allowing my personal circumstances to become a prison in a sense that obscures my view of God's purposes. When things get hard, when dry seasons come, when I'm going through a rough patch, listen, it's like the whole world shrinks down to us. And we forget that this whole world, all of our lives, everything about us, is not about us. And so we sometimes need to step back and gain some perspective to see what God's doing. This doesn't answer all doubts, but this is part of how we go through struggles with faith that come out on the other side. Let me tell you what I mean. Look at Proverbs 19.21 if you want to grab that real quick. We'll put it on screen for you if you don't. Proverbs 19.21, it's a great little verse here. You might want to memorize it this week. It's a real helpful verse. It says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What a great verse. Many. <laughs> Not like occasional small plans. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Let me ask you this. In, a, in our story today, <clears throat> uh, John the Baptist was sent. He, his mission was to, to point to Jesus, to preach repentance. R let me ask you this. Did he accomplish his purpose even as he had his head chopped off? I think we can all agree that he did. <laughs> we know that from previous texts. We even know in our text today that the most powerful man in that whole region took a, took a liking to him, did what he could to protect him from his own crazy wife. John the Baptist achieved the purpose for which God sent him. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. We go through life saying, this is how my life should play out. This is what I would do if I were God. <laughs> and, and so we learn to interpret God through our plans through our expectations or circumstances. We are always asking, what's the plan? What's the plan? What's the plan? We need to be asking, what is God's purpose? We need to go through life 
with an open-handed, an open-hearted sort of posture to God saying, Lord, please reveal to me your greater purpose. Because that is what will keep an anchor for you when times are hard. When you don't understand the circumstances. When tragedy strikes and there are not good answers. Romans 8.28 is a great verse um, that like Proverbs 19.21 would be worth memorizing. Romans 8.28 says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God doesn't waste anything in our lives, even the hard things. God can even use the hard things to accomplish his larger and greater purposes. You don't have to understand all of God's plan in order to trust in his purposes. In fact, I would submit that it is literally impossible (laughs) to understand all of God's plan. But you can trust his good purposes. I mean, just, just think about Jesus in the garden. Just before Jesus is about to enter the city of Jerusalem, where he knows full well he's going to die, he's talking with God the Father, And he essentially says, Lord, if if it is possible, if there's any other way, I I don't really really like this plan. But Father, I trust your purpose. The good news today, friends, (laughs) is that your personal circumstances, the the details of your lives along the way, your personal circumstances are not how God feels about you. If you want to know how God feels about you, continue to learn to look past your current prison to a cross that offers freedom. Because when we give ourselves to that larger, greater purpose of the goodness and the glory of a perfect, infinite, holy God who alone deserves that glory and praise, the plan is something we can deal with. Even if we don't know every step along the way. Even if it's hard. Even if there are unanswered questions. And it feels at times like the prayers are just bouncing off the wall. When we give ourselves to God's good purposes, we can learn to trust His plan. Let's pray, friends.